No one told me. It's always going to be just out of reach. Wow, do these people know something I don't know? Like yeah, The more hours I spend talking in public, the more chances I'll say something wrong and get in trouble. The good girl archetype was going to be the ruination of the world. It was this wake-up, cosmic wake-up. Just walking around exclamation points jumping off me at all times. I, I love messy humans. <laughs> you wanted this life. <laughs> this is your fault. You chose to do this. This is The Art of Asking Everything. I am Amanda Palmer. This week's guest is Leslie Salmon Jones in The Heart Doesn't Lie. I met Leslie in my 20s when I was living in Boston in an arts collective called The Cloud Club. And I was having weird problems with chronic soreness in my back and neck and I could just never get comfortable. So I asked a local massage therapist that I knew if he had any recommendations for someone who wouldn't, like, give me yet another massage, but but someone who would actually teach me about my body and what was going on with it and how to get out of the cycle of pain that I was always in. And he was like, Amanda, 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 you need Leslie Salmon Jones. And he was right. She helped me understand my body what it did, how it worked, and my power in a way that a normal back doctor just wouldn't have done. She just made me feel so incredibly okay. So of course I want her to be my friend. (laughs) Here's her basic bio. Leslie Salmon Jones is a professional dancer, yoga instructor, wellness coach, public speaker, and community activist. And along with her husband, Jeff W. Jones, she is the co-founder of a mashup yoga style called Afro Flow Yoga, which combines African dance with yoga. And Leslie and Jeff travel all around the world, but actually lately because COVID, they've been traveling using the internet. And they work with community organizations to, as they put it, help develop mastery over their physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual well-beings. That sounds lovely. I would love that. About a year ago, I led a retreat in the woods of upstate New York for my patrons. This was back in July of 2019. And the retreat was called Real Compassion. And me and about 50 people hung out for a few days and we ate and drank and talked and talked. And we learned about our bodies and our hearts and our habits. I wanted to do this with some leaders who knew what they were talking about. So I invited two people to co-teach this retreat with me. One was the best-selling writer and therapist and minister, Wayne Muller, who I also have a podcast interview coming up with, don't worry. And one was Leslie. And it was after that retreat and actually going through many heavy-duty moments, emotional moments with a lot of people, that we sat down to have this conversation in the woods at the Omega Institute in upstate New York. And we originally talked for over two hours about how we met, about Leslie's experience growing up black in a very rich white Toronto neighborhood. We talked about my old house, the Cloud Club, where Leslie first got to know me. We talked about how your body remembers trauma, the importance of self-compassion, and so much more. I think you guys are really going to enjoy this one. Please welcome, as my friends call her back home, LSJ. Dear listener, Leslie Salmon Jones. Leslie Salmon Jones, welcome to my podcast, The Art of Asking Everything. We are in a cabin in the woods, which is pretty weird. 
This is the first time I have recorded the podcast in a cabin in the woods. We just finished this retreat. Maybe we should talk about how we met. And that will actually start to explain who you are because mm. they're related. Yeah. Great. Do you remember when it was? I want to say it was probably about 15 years ago. Dear God. I know. I know. Well, I know I was living in the Cloud Club, so it, it couldn't have been more than that, but it was early days. And yeah. It, and it was uh, Dresden Dolls were already touring. Mm-hmm. So it would be after 2003 or four. Yeah, that's, my, that's when the band really started going at it. But I, and it's also when I had money. <laughs> There's like before I had money and things that I couldn't afford, and then after I started making money and I actually could buy nice things, I could divide my life into two sections. Yeah, and I had heard about you from Bob Vincent, our mutual body worker. Yeah, structural integration where we go on the table, and he go deep into our myofascia tissue. So Very intense body. So this is a guy, this guy, Bob Vinson, who introduced me to Leslie. I forget who introduced me to Bob, but in my early 20s, I, I've always been really into massage and chiropractic and acupuncture and like anyone can touch my body for any reason. And I'm psyched mm -hmm. because I've always had neck and back problems yeah. from when I was a kid. I had been getting massages from Bob and he was like this miracle worker. And I can even like divide my time getting massages into like, oh, there's like a massage that you get. And then there's getting your body worked right. on by a master level body toucher mm -hmm. like Bob Vinson. After many years of working with him, I was like, I'm just there are parts of my body that just aren't getting better. Yoga isn't doing it. Exercise isn't doing it. Massage isn't doing it. I just, things in there feel wrong. My hips are kind of fucked up. Like, what do I do? Right. Who do you go to? Like, I don't go to my primary care physician. They don't really do this kind of stuff. He'll say, go get some physiotherapy. Mm -hmm. And he said, you need Leslie Salmon Jones. Yeah. She does things to mm. people. <laughs> so I cold called this woman right. back when we called yeah. each other and you came over to my house. Yeah. Can you tell me what it felt like meeting me? Because I have no idea. Because oh, my house is weird. Oh, oh. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, to back it up, I had been going to Bob because I had lived in New York and I was training at Alvin Ailey and dance. And I had uh, met this rolfer, which is this technique, which is what. Bob did and had ten ser a series of 10 sessions, and it changed my life. And this is where they dig oh, in dig deep in. under your muscles. Yeah, and, and then right. all, like, any body stories, any trauma that had happened in my body, I was recording it all. Completely changed my life. I was dancing. I couldn't do the splits when and I started dancing again. Was it Bob working on you? No, this is another, this is a rolfer in New York. He was the first black rolfer in the world. And he lived in Sweden and he came to New York and I was his muse. Mm. So I did 10 sessions. Wait, what, is the, what does muse mean in this context? Oh, oh, <laughs> to <yeah>. be clear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I was, he had never worked on a black woman before. And he was like, I am so curious if like the emotion, the body is different, like what comes up. And so anytime he'd work on me and he started with my feet all the way up to the top of my head and my jaw and my groin. And, and he's a black yeah, guy from Sweden. Right. Yeah. 
Layers of weirdness. Layers of weirdness. And so I would record every session, all of the emotions that came up. So tremendous healing happened for me. And I could, I remember I couldn't do the splits. I was training at Alvin Ailey, which was eight hours a day. Yeah. And when and I first started, explain Alvin Ailey for yeah. somebody who knows nothing so, about dance. Yeah, thank you. So Alvin Ailey was one of the first black modern dancers, contemporary dancers, phenomenal. And he was, I'm from Toronto. And so when I was 13, I trained in ballet when I was seven. And I saw Alvin Ailey in Toronto when I was 13. And I saw this amazing, like, Black bodies, like, leaping across the stage. What year? Power. I was 13. So this is like... Oh, you want me to date 70s, 80s? Well, whatever. (laughs) Give us a decade. Give us some context. Hang on. Let me think about that. That was in the 70s. Okay. Mm Mm-hmm. And so I saw these, like, grace and power across the stage. And Mm. I was like, wow, I want to do that. Mm. So when I was in my 20s, I ended up... I went back into dance because I had quit because I had so much shame around my body mm. when I was a teenager. I had a lot of muscles and I was like, Ugh. you know, I didn't I just didn't feel feminine and whatever that means, whatever that meant at the time. Mm. And so I quit dance. And then because I was rebuilding my identity, I found dance was at the heart of what I, I loved. I remembered my dream about Alvin Ailey. I told my parents. I'm going to New York, like tomorrow. <laughs> so I had $300 in my pocket. Wow. You pulled a Madonna. I guess I did. <laughs> <laughs> and I went to New York. I went to Alvin Ailey. And um, I ended up taking the summer intensive program, which was like eight hours a day. Oh. Very intense heat. Lots of people. Training. It was like boot camp. And then I was going to go back to Toronto. But then I was invited to stay on and train for two years. You got picked. I got picked. Yeah. Nice. And then, so I did the program training for eight hours a day, and it was like so hard and so amazing. Every part of my body ached mm-hmm. every day. But then I met this Rolfer guy, and he was amazing. And this and is so, like in your 20s? Yeah, this 30s? is in my 20s. Yeah. You want to know my age? No. <laughs> We're I there. just want to put you in We're time. Just, okay, good. I'm happy to tell you, but... Um, so I was in my 20s. It was I was about 24. This was in 91. Do the math. Exactly. <laughs> and uh, I think actually I was 23 and 91. So part of it was like, you know, all the stuff, all the shame I had around my identity and my body image. When I was going through the raw thing, mm-hmm. I was facing it. Wow. I was writing about it. It was all coming up. So it was a tremendous healing for me. And then I found like, I was kind of rigid when I got there in my training, but after the rolling sessions, I could do the splits. I was open. My heart was open. My shoulders were relaxed. I just had freedom in my body. Mm. And I met my husband in 94, and then I moved to Boston, and I, it had been probably 10 years since you'd been rolled. Since I'd been rolled. And I was like, I need a tune up. Yeah. Because I could feel things getting a little bit out of alignment. So I called someone and I heard about Bob Vincent. Mm. So I started going for sessions, and every time I go on this and on the, his table, he'd say, "You've got to meet Amanda Palmer. <laughs> You've got to meet and Amanda was, Palmer." Was this when he was on Mass Ave in Arlington? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So I was going to him. Yeah, around the same time because uh-huh. I started with him, I think when I was in college or something. Huh. 
he was the local guy. He finally connected. And I was probably in my mid-20s or something really? when he connected yeah, us. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. Well, late yeah, 20s. Yeah, yeah. You met me by coming over to my house to do our first session. Yes. We didn't have coffee or anything. Right. What you, do you emailed me, and you were like, I'm here for three months. I can finally do this. I'm finally taking care of myself. I have time to do this to address So I was on tour. And, and then yeah. you, you had some time. So that was probably around 2003 or four yeah. when we were just starting hardcore touring, yeah. maybe 2005. Yeah. So what do you remember about oh, meeting me and oh, coming into my crazy house? Wow. <laughs> it was just like, first of all, it was so fantastic because it was just like a wonderland of amazingness and I just I remember I'm like wow she is this woman is like incredible it just it was just like so much there was just so much well and this is when I say my house just for the listeners this is Lee's house this is like Mm, the cloud mm, club which is like has antique Mm. bric-a-brac weird Mm. found art Starting in the 70s up until the present day, and it's, like, held together with magic and dreams. (laughs) Four floors of Hobbit, whole Alice in Wonderland, magic and dreamland. And isn't there a tree that goes, like, a wisteria vine or something? There was the vine died. That's a long long story. But there's also, there's, like, a cedar tree in the top (laughs) floor of the house that you can climb to get to a geodesic dome that sits atop the roof. I mean, it's a wild space and since i didn't have room in my apartment which is on the second floor we went up to the top floor which is like the party space yeah and we did a workout i loved it because it felt so raw because boston is so clean and just straight and coming from new york Mm -hmm. i had a hard time coming from new york to boston boston is pretty fucking straight it's pretty oh my god straight so i was like oh (laughs) And so coming into your place was like, oh, breath of fresh air. I was like, yes, an artist, yeah. someone who I can relate to, someone who can so. Well, and I also assume, I mean, I worked on the assumption then, and I yeah. work on the assumption now, but I should challenge my assumptions yeah. that the kind of people that you do private sessions for, for body work, are not like bohemian people in their 20s usually. That, They're could, probably that would be true. The well-heeled people with nice houses with, well, uh, you know, wall-to-wall carpeting. Although in New York, I was with a lot of all types and mostly artists. All types move from Boston to New York. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So I I dealt with a lot of types in New York. I felt like I was a little piece of New York. To show up and help poor Boston. It's (laughs) woeful straightness. So what I remember about that day is we we spent about two hours together, and I remember, you know, you basically led me through a body awareness and mm-hmm. a little a mini workout, and mm-hmm. you took my body mass. I did. Yeah, you wow. had a machine with you, I and you took my machine. body mass. That was back in the day. It was interesting. I was like, I don't even know if that machine is on, but uh. she's telling me that my body is technically okay, uh. normal according to a machine. And then I remember ending the session with like this, you know, like power mm. grabbing mm. energy from the universe. Mm. And I was like mm-hmm. an old version of me, the like punk rock, I hate woo people, teenage version of me would look at this and think that it was really corny. Mm. This version of me that it's now embodied in the world yeah, that has come to understand that there is so much power in my body that has right. been shamed and untapped is so fucking excited yeah. to finally meet an ally yeah. who do, who's not afraid of me, who doesn't think I'm weird, right. who's 
going to help me befriend mm. my body. Yeah. So you became an ally mm. in my life. But then, of course, I was also off t- on tour for nine months yeah. at a time. And we it's not like we have seen each other once a month since then. We've mm-hmm. been our relationship has been touch and go. And we I think we only did a handful of sessions. Yeah, but they were intense. They were intense. And they were concentrated. It was good because I got to we got, went so deep. And then I remember seeing you in action in your mm-hmm. shows. And I was like, oh, that's why the hip is like that. Because yeah. you were like leaning Turning. in and yeah. So it was uh, really an incredible time. By way of getting to know you, mm-hmm. what was it that came up in the role thing about your body and your shame and your past history story? You know, and now you're, I mean, you're a healer yourself mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. Okay, taking me back. It's so interesting when you're in the healing journey how raw things are. And then beyond that, like when you continue, I'm always on the healing journey. But I would say that when I was growing up in Toronto, and I grew up in a predominantly white neighborhood, so my background is my grandparents were Jamaican, three of my grandparents. And my the only grandparent I knew was my Scottish, Irish, Canadian grandmother, Violet Bell. Wow. And she was amazing. She was pretty fierce. And so <laughs> Violet Bell. Yeah, Violet Bell. But she was like, she was interesting. She was really spunky. Her mother was Scottish. So my ancestors came from Dundee, Scotland. They found it. They had a thousand acres of land upstate New York. And then they heard about this free land in Canada. So they went over to Ontario and founded a place called New Dundee. And it's still there. Wow. And it was a mill town. It was an old mill town. So we have all that history. And then my great-grandmother married my great-grandfather, who was an Irishman. So at the time, it was a mixed marriage. And so (laughs) my grandmother was disowned. From the wealth, from the whole family. Because she married down. Because she married down. Oh, shit. And then my great-grandmother and my great-grandfather, they were, they were from that Christian science background. Mm. And my grandmother had polio when she was about five in her legs. And the doctors told them she'd never walk. This is so Violet they, Bell. Yeah, that's Violet Bell. So they prayed on her, and then not only did she walk again, but she became this incredible sprinter. She even would race when she was, like, six months pregnant. Wow. Like, she was an amazing runner. So she was really strong-minded. And then my my great-grandparents, in Toronto, there's something called the um, CNA, the Ontario CNA, where people come. And my grandfather had come from Jamaica. And he went from Jamaica to Egypt. This is in the early 1900s. He went to Boston to go to MIT because he wanted to fight in the war, but he was too young. And his parents were like, you're not going to do that. Mm. You want to fight in the British war. Wow. And so they sent him to MIT. (sighs) So he was probably one of the first black people at MIT, most likely. Yeah. Wow. One of the first. He ended up leaving. He didn't tell his parents. And he went up to Siberia to fight in the war. And then he got shrapnel wounds. So he ended up in Toronto. And he got an order from the queen to greet 
the other military who came in and also helped a lot of Jamaican folks come in. Mm. And so my great-grandparents ended up at, down at the CNE, Canadian National Exhibition. And that happens every summer, and it's, okay. a, it's a place where people gather, and there's amusement, right? There's all kinds of things happening there. It's like a cultural place. So he was there, and they fell in love with him. They took him home for Sunday dinner and introduced him to my grandmother. Oh. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so they fell in love. So this is a mixed marriage back in the early 1900s. Wow. So I come from that lineage of people who are like going against the grain, against society for love. Oh, I know. I know. Growing up, my mom, who had come from this mixed marriage, and she ended up, she was like a five. She had uh, four siblings. Her siblings, so my mom was very light complexion and grew up in Toronto. But she was called the N-word, and growing up, they were kind of discriminated against. She met my dad, Canadian, born in Toronto, but of Jamaican descent, beautiful Beautiful, dark, strong. He was like really um, strong, like looked like an athlete. She married him and she was the only one of her siblings who married someone black. All my other aunts and uncles married someone of European descent, except for my other aunt married someone Caribbean, but he wasn't visibly of a person of color. So my cousins, my first cousins are blonde, blue eyes, like visibly white but wow. they have like a quarter black and I have you know so but we're first cousins and we grew up together and we love each other and we would hang out and people we'd be like we're cousins and they're like who's oh. adopted oh, you know, and we're right. like nobody we're blood cousins so I grew up like that and so the neighborhood that I grew up in my dad had become like he had been orphaned and he wanted to go to med school and he became a musician and he couldn't get into med school and he became a surgeon and he became one of the first, he became Canada's first black chief of surgery. There's a lot of first black. There's a lot yes. in this story. And yeah, exactly. <laughs> I grew up in a predominantly white neighborhood and with that came a lot of body image issues. Now I know as young people, Probably most people have body image issues. Mm. On top of that, not seeing black bodies reflected in media, it can create some issues, you know. And in school, uh, it, it was just my family. And to this day in our neighborhood, the neighborhood we grew up in, there are really not many people of color. So my mom's still there after 50-something years. Yeah. And Prince actually moved in. Yeah, to the neighborhood. So it was a very... He left Minneapolis? Yeah, he married um, someone from Toronto. Oh, wow. So I didn't even know it's that. A, it's, the other thing about this area is very extremely affluent. So it's your mom and Prince. Basically. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's so, not bad. Um, so, um, so it's an affluent oh. neighborhood. So that also had a whole different etiquette and things. So I grew up in like, there were mansions and I'd play and there were... You know, tennis courts, swimming people pools. swimming inside the house. Okay. Maybe Cause, bowling Because it's cold. Because it's Toronto. Well, also, <laughs> it was an affluent neighborhood, right? 
So that was a whole other thing. So body image, you know, didn't see myself reflected. So I shrunk myself so small. Mm-hmm. Even like my hair. You know, people would say, oh, your hair. Can I touch your hair? It's so, oh, can I touch your this? Because people didn't see, yeah. right? So you start feeling a little self-conscious and then somewhat objectified. And then blah, blah, blah. My mom, people would look at my mom and say, that can't be your mom. Yeah, because she's lighter. Wow. Right. So things like that. I had a lot of body shame. My muscular build was, I felt really masculine. Although now I love it, Uh but I hated it back then. Mm -hmm. When I started doing the healing and went on the rolfing table, even like somebody touching my feet, going into my feet had a story. You know, my feet were flat. They were wide. Mm-hmm. You know, this kind of thing. Every part of my body, I faced the hatred that I had. And it was quite a journey of releasing and forgiveness. And I remember, you know, even traumas that would happen, even just painful things that happened. I had told the story in the workshop that I had a friend one day, uh, we were riding, I was probably like, seven years old and you know how you ride on your banana bike and you're so excited and I was running down riding down a hill and she was in front of me and she slammed on the brakes and I went flying over the handlebars Mm. and landed in the handlebar in my solar plexus and it knocked the wind out of me and I I forgot that story so as I was being rolfed when he came to my solar plexus I gasped and I could like it could barely breathe when he just even touched his finger. Wow. I wrote down the story. So like all of the stories that lived in my body. Were you talking about this on the table? Mm. Or was all this done in silence? Mm. And question. as your memories came up, mm. uh, would you talk? Mm. Sometimes I would and sometimes I wouldn't. Because it took sometimes it took some time to process, mm. and then I'd write it, and then I talked to him when I got back, because mm. the information didn't always come right away. Uh. So it might come the next day when I'm writing, uh. and then when I go back on the table, I talk to him. So it just depended on how deep the information was and where when it came to me. There definitely, there was definitely a lot of gender stuff for sure. That's all like so much deep, deep, deep conditioning. The racial things that would happen that were their own separate traumas. Um, and I mean, I could go into stories, but it's just like you remember the, the body remembers the stories. I remember the stories. You know, I remember our family. Uh, in our neighborhood, sometimes just walking home and it wasn't safe because someone was had my sister on the ground, mm. like pinned her down and said they were going to kill her because she's because of the end, you know, calling her an N word and running home and to my mom and trying to get help. Like little things like that. Well, they're pretty significant things. This is kind of a cute story. I've always had like guys in my life like I love the guys and I love women also but there was I've always had a connection when I was a little girl um when I I I was married at three (laughs) at five 
I had this boyfriend, this Italian guy. We loved each other. We just loved each other. And we knew we were different, but we didn't quite know how. Mm. And we found out that we were both Christian. So we'd walk around the neighborhood and said, we can get married because we're both Christian. <laughs> I love that you needed a reason. Right, exactly. <laughs> and we kiss each other. And we were just like, we oh. just loved each other so much. And so we'd hold hands and all of that. And then he, you know, he had maybe in grade one, he had a gang of friends and they were all guys and cool. I was hanging out with the guys and it was me and the guys and, and John and so happy. And I remember one day we were all playing and one of the guys had a dog and I was kind of afraid of dogs. And um, the dog started chasing us. We were, we were running and the dog chased us and jumped on my leg and scratched my leg. And I was like, oh, my God, your dog bit me. Oh, my God. And so the kid was like, that's ridiculous. <laughs> my dog didn't bite you. So now here's like all of these boys lined up in front of me. Mm. John's at the very end. And the guy whose dog scratched me was at the beginning of the line, right? And they're all looking at me. And the guy who has the dog says, who likes black people anyways? And so went down the line. This guy says, I don't. I don't. I don't. I don't. I don't. And then it got to John. And there was silence. And I was looking in his eyes. And he was looking in my eyes. Now, we had loved each other. And he looks at his friends. And he looks at me. He looks at his friends. He's like trying to figure out what to say, what to do. And then finally he looks at me and he says, I don't. So that crushed me. And um, and I mean, it was one thing his friends, I really didn't care what they thought, but it was him. him. So I remember running home, mom, mom, bawling, saying, John says he doesn't like black people. So like, like things like that would happen pretty much daily. First of all, my sister made me get married when I was six. Oh, wow. Without my consent. She wow. made me kiss him. Oh, wow. Jared Ruquist. And she, I actually put this in a song. So she, she had been given a make-and-bake oven, and she needed kind of an excuse to make a thing. So she <laughs> decided she'd make a wedding cake, and then she needed a wedding, and she just grabbed me, wow. my older, my cruel older sister. She's like, I'm grabbing you. You and Jared are going to get married so I can make a wedding cake. She, I just hated it because he was gross and he was a yeah. boy and he was the one we didn't. He was the enemy. Yeah. But I also like I, I really wanted to be a boy. Mm. I didn't want to be a tomboy. Yeah. You know, and I didn't want to be a boy. Right. I just wanted what they had. Right. I just wanted the freedom and the power. They just all seemed so lucky. Yeah. Add another layer to it because I was a privileged white suburban girl. Yeah, yeah. I didn't want to be rich. Yeah. I didn't want to be not white. Mm. I just wanted to be a boy. Right. Because I knew I was second class. Yeah. I mean, who knows what other layers might have been there mm -hmm. metaphysically? You know, you're dealing with layers of the othering, mm -hmm. different classness yeah. from race, gender. I don't know at what point you saw your wealth privilege, but, mm -hmm. you know, living in Lexington, Massachusetts, 
you're not confronted right. with a lot of people who don't have money. And I remember the first times I was in middle school and went over to the houses of my friends who lived on the other side of the tracks, mm -hmm. literally, mm -hmm. and was just like, oh, I didn't, I didn't know this was a thing. Yeah. I didn't know the people in my middle school actually lived on welfare, right. lived in poverty, you know, had moms who were, you know, like crouching in the bedroom crying and there was mm. no money to buy groceries. Like that just wasn't my world. We had our problems, but mm. they weren't those problems. Your wealth of knowledge about the body mm. and what it holds yeah. onto when you're navigating childhood, trying mm. to figure out like what is this bag of flesh that I'm carrying around and what do I do with it and what does it mean? And it's so interesting, even now just in my mid-40s, I'm just starting to unpack all those systems of thinking mm. that I had about myself from when I was 7, mm -hmm. 14, even 25, right. 30. Like before I really even peeked into the fields of freedom where I could really just love this body. Yeah. When you look at it, can you even know what was what? Or do you just look at it and you're like, it was, it was all happening and thank Christ I got out. Mm. Even like your uh, feet, like yeah. there they are. Like they're not boy feet. They're not right. like they're, yeah. you know, yeah, I mean, there's so much even just with the feet, because <laughs> as a dancer, there's so much there. And They're not ballerina a, feet. Right, right. Although my feet, I have a, like this point, this really strong point mm. that a lot of ballerinas would die for. Mm. So it was this kind of like I have got big, strong Jamaican feet with a powerful point. So I just learned to love, so they're big, so what? They're wide, so what? Mm. And so you love the parts of yourself. It's such a gift to look through the lens of, of so many lenses, look through your body of the lens. But I really did work on unpacking all of the things for many, many, many years, all of the layers. Ultimately... It was about that self-love, self-compassion that we've been talking about all week. When you look at the seeds yeah. of another way of thinking of having compassion for yourself and love for yourself yeah. and like befriending this body that you wound up in, was that Alvin Ailey? Where, where did the, what, what is the lineage of people who turned you on to the idea that maybe this was the way to head? Yeah. Fortunately, it was my parents, and I know not everyone has that story or that. The, I, my parents, my mom is just an amazing human. She was a, a nurse and a civil rights activist, human rights activist, and just the most incredible mother and mother to many. I would watch her fill her well. I'd watch her. She taught me self-care, mm. which is really quite amazing. I remember being in like three years old and going to nursery school and kids would call me chocolate pudding or whatever the names were. And I come home crying, mom, they called me chocolate pudding. And she said, just call them snowball or something <laughs> like that. You know, just 
take the drama out of it. Like just, just that was a way when I was really young. But then what she helped me with was she helped me get my voice. So when I was in public school, kindergarten, grade one, grade two, there were so many racial stereotypes because we were the only black family. Mm-hmm. So even the teachers were like, oh, they're dumb. They're, you know, whatever it was. Swimming teacher was like, she looked at my mom. We had a pool in the backyard. And my parents had a, a swimming instructor come over. And I'm the darkest child in the family. And she looked at me and she says, I can't teach her. She's a sinker. Yeah. So my mom fired her right away. (laughs) But so things like that, every day there was something, right? So these stereotypes every day we'd face. So I would be able to tell my mom and say, hey, mom, this teacher said this or this teacher. This teacher laughed when the kids were teasing me. Mm. She said, okay, well, let's go in to talk to the teacher. Let's go in to talk to the principal. So we'd sit down and we'd say, okay, we're coming in. Instead of my mom speaking on my behalf, she would say, speak. So I was able to speak to the principal or the teacher my truth. And that was the most powerful thing. You know, that was an act of like compassion, self-love, self-care. So she taught me at a very young age. And then my dad as well, being like, again, this tall, he looked like Sidney Poitier. He, he passed away in 2005, but he was always, you know, in the hospital, the only black doctor. He had so much discrimination, but never did he have resentment for it. He just always had so much love. And handled things with so much grace. And he was a very elegant man. So I never saw him shrink himself. And he stood tall. And he was like this, a posture, like as straight as a, like a, a ruler. Amazing. Mm. Chest, you know, muscles, just so strong. Never shrunk down. And my parents gained so much respect in the community. They're mm. so loved and revered in the community. They were amazing role models. So I have two brothers and a sister. I'm the baby. Yeah, me too. All right. (laughs) Uh, Do you think they took all the same tools away from your mom and dad that you did? I would say yes. You know, it's amazing how you can grow up with siblings and they all have a different story. It's like, was that the same household? Yeah. It's amazing. My parents encouraged us to be who we are. So we're all doing very different things. So my oldest brother, he's a neuropsychologist and he deals with head trauma mm-hmm. and really a humble guy. Like he wrote all of these books when my dad had de- dementia and we were asking the doctors, you know, what should we do? And they said, ask your brother because we've read all his books. He's oh, our gr- <laughs> he's basically our guru. <laughs> so that's my oldest brother. And then my second oldest brother, so that's Doug, my brother, and he's named after my dad, John Douglas Salmon, Dr. John Douglas Salmon. 
And then my second oldest brother, Warren, he was the one we were growing up with who read Malcolm X at like 12 years old. Hmm. And he was like, you don't know your roots. You Oreo cookies, you're black on the outside, white on the inside. He was like, you know, militant. He was like, we go on camping trips in the summer and my parents would like step out of the car and go to the little tour, you know, tour office to find out, get a map or something. And he'd turn around and he'd be like, you Oreo cookies. (laughs) (laughs) So he grilled us and which was really good. I'm glad he did that actually, because we were growing up and really didn't know our roots until the movie Roots came out. Wow. Because there's no black history. It's like, where did we come from? Well, especially in Toronto. In Toronto, in Canada, there was nothing in the educational systems. It was just like they, the teachers would put on a, a film of uh, somewhere, somewhere in Africa and people, you know, in grass skirts, topless or something. And people would look at us and say, is that what you do at home? Oh, wow. It's like, no, actually, that's not what we do at home. Um, Warren, he stuck to his roots and he developed Afrocentric software for the educational system. It's called Ashaware. You know, he sells it to what does that mean? What does that mean? Afrocentric Afrocentric? software. So it's basically an educational tool to give you black history. So software that can that goes out and is educational. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So it's in schools and he's he sold it in you know, schools in the U.S. and in Canada. And then he also has something called First Fridays in Toronto. It's a networking for, you know, black businesses or where people can come and they can share their work. Mm. And so that's been going on for about 20 years. And he's he's really followed in my mom's footsteps in terms of being an activist. And our family's very um, prominent in the community, in the black community, and also in the community at large, because my mom was a metro counselor. She was a politician. Mm. And then my sister, who is pretty amazing, she's reinvented herself. Her name's Heather. When she graduated from college, our neighbors started the Toronto Raptors, who just won. <laughs> Finally, after 20 years. <laughs> But our neighbors are the, you know, they actually own the team. They started the team. Wow. We grew up with them. And so when she graduated, they gave her a gig. So she was part of building the Toronto Raptors. And then she was sort of on the track to corporate America. And she was going to, she got a job in the NBA, but then she was, she married this actor named Clark Johnson. And then she got into Hollywood and she's just had so many different lives. But right now she has done a total healing and is living in Maui. She has a retreat center and she's a sound healer. Oh, wow. And teaches yoga, aerial yoga. She's really amazing with her her partner, who's a musician. So oftentimes, my sister, my husband, her partner, and I, we collaborate. We do these incredible workshops together. So it's like she's on one end of the uh, continent, I'm on the other, and we're Mm. parallel in some ways. That's really interesting that she came around to, that you both came around to healing. Yeah. And your brother. Yeah. You know, we were talking about the origins of your 
ability to to recover and heal from all of that. Mm. How do I get out of here? This confusion, this self-hatred, this trauma. There's the stories mm. and there's the tools and there's the work. You know, it is always interesting looking at the like the lineage, the family lineage. I look yeah. at my I'm looking at my own family right now in such a new way. Mm. Especially having had a child mm. and being able to look a lot more dispassionately. No resentment, no regret, an open, bizarre curiosity. Mm. What happened to me, to the other girls I was growing up with, to my sister? Like, what was that? I had a sense growing up. I mean, I grew up angry, mm-hmm. but it wasn't very discriminating and it wasn't very defined and it was an anger wrapped in confusion right but i knew i was pissed (laughs) but i mean i knew i was pissed and i didn't really know where to head with that i knew intuitively that making art and going into that dark space was preferable to harming myself Mm there was a lot of darkness in there that was going to have to get out somehow. Mm -hmm. I looked towards art and music as like, that was the, I was like, if I'm going to head somewhere, I don't know where I'm going, but like those people look like they've got it figured out. Yeah. You know, those women screaming at those instruments, like that looks like an option. Right. So that's where I'm heading. Yeah. yeah. Um, But also interestingly, my, my plan B if I ever had a plan B and I kind of had a plan B in college was to be a massage therapist. Wow. Cause I loved touching people's bodies and making them feel better. I was like, Oh, it just feels so good to concretely rub somebody's feet, neck, body. I was a, under the, under the table massage therapist all through college. That's how I earned my wow. cigarette beer money. And I loved it. And I actually don't see a chasm of difference between body work and stage music work. Mm, mm. I mean, if you peel it all away, you are trying to connect with people and make them feel something better, maybe Mm -hmm. help. Mm. It's so interesting to think of you like growing up in this environment. You know, we just, we know what we know. There you are like in that neighborhood in that family, right? Knowing what you know, yeah. Hating your body, yeah. And then, you know, and then there's the dot dot dot. It's like so, Leslie. Like how how did you get out of there? Right. When I was born in the '60s, I came out with two fists. You know, civil rights. I came out of the womb. I had my fists up, ready to fight. I I remember feeling that warrior spirit, mm. like that that fight. Like I'm, I was ready to fight the world, and I and my mom, unfortunately, was the one who, you know, I was aiming that toward my anger. I'm little. She's the like one who was is, there. She was the one who was there. So she was I safe. was frustrated. She was safe, and before I was six years old, I was fighting her all the time because I was the youngest of four. I think we talked about that, and I was like, "You brought me in this world. You better pay attention." But like, she had. <laughs> Other shit to do. Other shit to do. So, 
So I would just give her give her a real hard time. But, you know, I would tell her terrible things. I would be like, don't you tell my daddy I was mean to you today. Like, And I would just love my dad. It's like he'd come home and I'd run, dad, daddy. So just actually she would say that out of the four kids. So she was like, first one, she had it under control. Second, under control. Third, under control. <laughs> Fourth, she had to go to parenting classes to figure me out. So she did, you know, figured out a good technique. And the technique was to talk to me, to sit down and say, Leslie, why did you do that? Why did you say that? So she taught me emotional intelligence at such a young age. And I actually had to think about why I said something or mm-hmm. the action, why I stuck the gum in the whatever, why I hid her car keys. <laughs> were you, were you I, hiding I, her car keys? Oh, my God. Oh no, I was hiding her. Yeah. <laughs> And then and then when I started thinking about it and then I remember relatives would come over and say, were you mean to your mom today? And and the accountability, Mm. it started weighing on me. And then I started shifting my behavior. And then my mom and I would sit down. I remember at six and say, can we talk? Seven, can we talk? Fifty, can we talk? (laughs) You know, it's like we have this amazing relationship. But she really helped me. I used to have hairy fits. Like the rage would just come up. I couldn't find something and I'd throw things all over the place. Mm-hmm. And she taught me how to like, like, like hone that, like, you know, really work with my anger. And so in working with my anger, I also had, when I was, my parents also, what they did was that they exposed me, like you said, you go across the way, right, to this other neighborhood and realize mm-hmm. people. So what my parents did was they exposed us to community service. So even though we grew up in this affluent neighborhood, they never, ever wanted us to have that kind of privileged mm-hmm. attitude. So on the weekends, we would go in. If people came from Jamaica, we give them our clothes. They exposed us, exposed us, exposed us to the realities of, of life. Mm. And so I used to have friends who lived in, you know, in the projects, and I go to see them on the weekends. What happened was because of where I lived, there were some people who didn't like me coming over there. So I had I would get death threats from people who were jealous or parents. No, from people in the projects. Oh wow! Like, don't you bring your black ass in this area or whatever it was? So here in my neighborhood, I wasn't really didn't feel a hundred percent welcome, you know. And outside of the neighborhood, I didn't feel welcome. So what happened was that internal, I started internalizing it, and what I would do is I'd shrink my light. Because anytime I would go somewhere, I just felt like I was making too much of a, I had too much of a presence. Mm -hmm. So I would shrink myself. And in shrinking myself, I started harming myself. Smoking, drinking, whatever. Like just not choosing to be healthy. Mm -hmm. And I think many young people do that. But in that, in that process, I actually, I was hanging out with people who didn't have my best interest. You don't say. You don't say. <laughs> they didn't have my back. Yeah. And because I was just trying to fit in. Yeah. I'm sure we all knew. Oh, I was right? I was there. Yeah, I was the- I was on that same smoking right. corner. Yeah, exactly. 
so in that, I actually met somebody. I could say now he's probably extremely mentally ill. Mm. And maybe bipolar, schizo. Where are you now? Like te- late teens? This is late teens. This, this is also my era of incredibly poor taste in men. <laughs> <laughs> Something about that age. No wonder we like each hot other. Hot drug dealers. <laughs> right. <laughs> what is it about hot drug right, dealers right. and trench coats? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so this guy, um, this guy ended up, uh, he was 11 years older than me, and he ended up, um, he, was, he was really imbalanced, so he was either extremely dark, like, extremely destructive or ex- and extremely creative at the same time. Yes. And um, when I realized he was not stable, I tried to pull myself away from him. And in doing that, he actually, he was like a vampire type of person. Mm-hmm. Um, he was into black magic. Real black magic. Real black magic. Oh, shit. And, uh, and this is all in Toronto. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And at the time, luckily, I had an aunt who's who was an astrologist clairvoyant. So I kind of was in the realm of, you know, understanding a little bit more than the... You had a Rolodex for that. (laughs) I had a Rolodex. (laughs) So when I was trying to get myself away from him, he was trying to pull me in. And I didn't realize exactly what he was doing, but it was like I was walking around like a zombie. I was literally, it was like I was in the dark and I felt like I was holding on to my life by my fingernails. It was like being in the, a whirlpool and you're on the edge and you're just trying to get a grip and you're slipping. Mm. So the, my loved ones, they didn't know what was going on. I couldn't really explain it. And I was, I was in a spiritual crisis. I couldn't find my light. I always had my light and I couldn't find it. It was like someone shut off the lights. Mm. And then I found out one day I happened to walk in. We were business partners and I happened to walk in on him and he had Wait, you were business partners with Black Magic guy? Yeah. Yeah, okay. I had a, what I actually had a um I had a studio and kind of an after hours club okay. at the time. And in the dark. Uh, <laughs> and, and um anyhow, I walked into the studio uh our, we had this amazing, it was an amazing creative community of like, we just, it was dancing all night and we had artists and musicians and it was like amazing. Incredible. It. You would have loved it. No, you would have loved it. It says arty and sexy. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So um, I had walked in on him one day and I was trying to get out of his life, get my stuff and go. And I walked in and he had like, he was in, had candles and he had like a bracelet of mine with my sweat on it and my hair and like all these crazy things and a diagram of my life. And he's like, I'm here to take everything away from you. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> Leslie. Yeah, I know. It's uh, kind of a dark story. But no, it's I mean, I, I've got some. Yeah, I have sure some of my own from my own uh, crazy ass drug dealing uh, yeah. corruptors. Yeah. But what happened? So I it's it was almost like someone was holding a gun to my head without holding the gun. But I, you know, that's not my I mean, it sounds terrifying. It was terrifying. I was like, hey, you don't need to do that. Blah, blah, blah. I kind of taught myself out the door. Mm. But at that point, I was like, I am in deep trouble. Yeah. I don't know what this is about. 
but it's a spiritual, energetic thing. So I called my aunt. I couldn't talk to anybody about it. Which side of the family? On my dad's side. Okay. She was the first. She was the only one conceived in Jamaica. She's powerful. She's was like Stavella Concepcion. So I called her Aunt Stavella. <laughs> she, I mean, she could see spirits. She had, she would do readings for people in the Plaza Hotel in New York. <laughs> people would come from all over the world. This oh. is right on theme with your life, by the way, that you're, that, that this, that would be her venue. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Of course she's in the plaza. Right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so I called her up and I said, okay, this is what's happening. And she said, all right, you're really young to be going through this. This is like, she was amazed how, how deep I had gone into this energetic field. So she said, okay, this is what you're going to do. You're going to cleanse, you're going to drink lemon water, you're going to bathe, throw salt over your shoulder, you do all these things, all these rituals, read the Psalm in the Bible, 104, I think it was Psalm 141, in the 23rd Psalm. And then she said, and this is my, I'm going to give you this mantra, and I want you to repeat this every day. And it goes, I, and you say your full name, will not permit any person, place, or thing to ruin my inner structure, not on the mental plane, spiritual plane, physical plane, or emotional plane. So I did. I followed her. I quit all the unhealthy habits. I started cleansing. I started running. I started getting my mind straight. And I remembered myself. Mm. And I remembered that dance, that Alvin Ailey dream. Mm. So I went back to dance for six months. And so I just started rebuilding myself and finding my way back to my light. And he, he's okay. He was okay. Like nothing, nothing terrible, but he kind of, our business fell apart. It just, you know. I mean, in the movie, he would be falling off a cliff in a pit of fire. (laughs) He's still alive as far as I know. I've seen him. Do you, uh, do you ever make peace with him? I have made tremendous peace with myself Mm. and I've seen him. um, I've seen him a few times and I saw him in Trinidad, like after I did a lot of healing, went to Alvin Ailey and Mm. I was, uh, I was telling the story the other day, how my husband now we were in Trinidad. If you ever get a chance to go to carnival, it's the most amazing thing Mm. and you can play mass. And so my husband and I had like these warrior headdresses on with feathers and you know we were just dancing in the hot sun and we had like bands around our arms and it was like glistening with sweat and just dancing dancing and out of nowhere when I'm in my fullest power (laughs) is this guy in my face and I looked at him and all of a sudden he shrunk and I realized he's just a human being. And from there, that moment, I really forgave him. Mm. And not only did I forgive him, I am so grateful to him because I found my light. If it weren't for him. Who knows? I found my power. Yeah. I, I, I just, and then I've seen him since and it's cool. It's all good. <laughs> but no, no hard feelings. 
because, you know, we're in this, he was a mayor to help me. And now you teach, mm. you help people. What do you think the simplest thing that you have taken away from all this that you've learned? I would say the simplest thing is something that we all share, is the breath. Going into the breath. The breath is life. So when we come into our vessels out of the womb, the first thing we do is we go, <gasps> we inhale. We're out of the water. And that's life. That's the, that's the energizing. That's the inspiration. That <gasps> inspire, inspiring. And then the exhale is when we it's when we leave our vessels. That's the last thing we do. And that's the rest. And the breath is the life when we follow the inhalation, the exhalation. There's so much power in the breath. And so much the breath has taught me. Now, if I get scared, I... <laughs> yeah. Or if I, uh, you know, just to release, it's like finding the softness or, you know, the breath is such a great teacher and something that is with us for our whole lives. And I do a lot of work with um, trauma, with people who've experienced trauma. And that's the first place I start. It's the most accessible. And as you're aware, uh, Amanda, with the practice of breath, it brings us into the present moment. When we focus on the breath, we can be completely present, not worried about yesterday or tomorrow. What is always happening. Which is always happening. Well, the only other thing that's happening that's easy to pay attention to in our bodies yeah. is our breath. I mean, right. we could sit with a stethoscope and listen to the beating of our own heart, but the breath's way easier because yeah. it's right there. You can really exactly. feel it and you can really hear it. Yeah. But for someone who doesn't, has never meditated, mm -hmm. has never done yoga, is listening to us completely confused because they don't know what it means even to pay attention to their breath. They're like, so what you, so you, you're right. so you're breathing great. Yeah, like what, I, yeah. what does that mean? How would you explain to a total, you know, I want to say lay person, whatever, an, 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 an a novice mm. uh, who has never done any kind of yoga meditation. When you say the breath, and I assume you mean paying attention, yeah, paying attention to the breath. Mm -hmm. What if someone is out there listening, thinking like, okay, that what, how, right. what, yeah, what do you mean? Yeah, tell tell me something concrete. Right, right. What would you say? Yeah, I would say to to check in with yourself, like to even see where you are on the journey. Like maybe it's like, are you resistant to even hearing about self care? Like. Some people are resistant to even self-care, which is many people. Even the word would probably even the give word, some people heebie-jeebies. Absolutely. Self-care is for, oh, yeah. for dirty hippies. Right, right. Or clean exactly. hippies. Yeah. <laughs> so, Yoga people. Right. We're all, you know, we're all on different levels and, and different paths 
And so if self-care is something that's triggering that word, I just start with like, where are you at in this moment? Actually, it's okay where you are. You don't have to be anywhere but where you are. Starting beginning with the breath is noticing like where you're holding your breath is a right now if you're if I'm talking to someone out there who wants to practice just taking a moment even let's take a moment feel your breath where it is in your body whether it's rapid shallow noticing the breath slow it down you're taking a deep breath in and Exhaling and letting it go and then checking in and notice how that felt. And there is no one way I could say the breath, but some people that might not resonate with. You know, we had tools. You can give people tools. We can, and um, whether it's meditation. Oh, as amazing as like we have, a, we have, if we're talking about the body, we have the pain body that we have to navigate through. And it's like a landmine because sometimes we're dealing with our own pain body, but then we meet someone else's pain body. Mm. And what do you, can you explain pain body? It's an accumulation of maybe past traumas or, you know, emotional emotions that gather. And it's like, it, it's not necessarily a physical thing, but it's like, it's the combination of like the armor. Yeah, that we, you know, we're protecting ourselves. And and when we when people get a little close and when we go a little close, there's like a lot of tenderness. Mm -hmm. And so the work that we were doing in the circle was, uh, you know, we created the the environment for people to feel safe enough to go into the deepest, darkest parts of themselves and to touch that place of and to find that place of self-compassion. It's a practice. I mean, it's not going to happen overnight. It, some people might happen overnight for some people. It, it, it could be a lifetime practice. So I would say for me, finding my way out of it hmm. was finding it through my heart. So the heart is like when I was in my crisis, I had to listen to my heart. I could not listen to my head. My head was not making any sense at the time. What did, what did it mean to listen to your heart? Yeah. It's, um, it's like that resonance of something that brought me joy. It's like I can explain it like if you have a pet or someone you love mm. and that feeling, that warmth, that tickly feeling or tingly feeling or mm. that, that pull of something that, that resonates with you, if you will. And I think really a pet or a baby or a, a loved one mm. at feeling um, when you think of something that that you connect with or someone that you connect with that's how I had to rebuild myself finding those things again the head will lead me astray sometimes because of all the thoughts and all of the limitations mm. the heart doesn't lie so I would say that in the week that we were together with the 60 people, 
we gave the opportunity for people to create a little spaciousness in their hearts mm. to go into those places. And we all have different things that like you, you know, you said the music, you saw artists who were, who were performing and who were like that tugged your heart. And that's what made you follow the path. Humans want connection. They want connection. We are creatures of connection. That's the beauty of slowing down and listening. And not only listening, but also being heard. And people were, had the space to share their stories. Yeah. It's like you can see, I can see energetically the shift and the opening. I love you. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for doing this. Thank you. This has been the Art of Asking Everything podcast. I am Amanda Palmer. Thank you so much to my guest, Leslie Salmon-Jones. This was recorded at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York, with engineer John Coors in their special fancy podcasting room. The theme song that you're listening to right now is called Bottom Feeder from my 2012 crowdfunded album, Theater is Evil. Many thanks to Jarek Bischoff, who arranged and mixed the in-betweeny orchestral music that you hear in this podcast. Those are sort of snippets based off songs from my latest album, There Will Be No Intermission, which you should listen to if you like very sad, depressing songs about feelings. You can also go support Jarek on Patreon. He's an amazing arranger and composer and highly recommended by me. For all the music that you heard in this episode, you can go to the new and improved amandapalmer.net slash podcast. Millions of thanks to my podcast assistant, social media helper, and additional engineer, Xanthia O'Connor. This podcast was produced by Fanny Co. Many thanks to everyone at Team AFP, Haley, Michael, Jordan, Alex. I love all you guys. Thank you so much. And thanks go to Nick Rizzuto, Brittany Bomberger, Ali Cohen, and Braxton Carter. And last but not least, this whole podcast would not be possible without my patrons. At current count, about 15,000 of them. They make it possible for this podcast to have no ads, no sponsors, no censorship, no bullshit. We are just the media doing what we do. So special thanks are due to my high-level patrons, Simon Oliver, St. Alexander, Bertie Black, Ruth Ann Harnish, and Leela Cosgrove. Thank you guys so much for helping me make this. Everyone else, please go to Patreon, become a supporting member. This will also give you access to the follow-up live chat that I've been doing with every guest a few days after the podcast comes out. The podcast comes out on Tuesday. The live cast is usually Friday. You can follow my social media or the podcast page for more information. The Patreon is also full of extra things and pictures and all sorts of goodness. And you will get the podcast right plop, in your inbox. Thank you so much, everyone. Signing off, this is Amanda fucking Palmer. Keep on asking everything.